if you've got a story you'd like to tell or you have a recommendation of someone who would make a great guest on 80 Proof Politics, email us at 80proofpolitics at gmail.com. That's 80proofpolitics at gmail.com. Did you two know each other? Does we had no idea. Had never met. Right. Had never met in our lives. Um, so our good friend who is now in the VP's office, who I had worked with for several years on immigration reform in the House that never got across the finish line. But One of your five Democrats. Correct. Right. <laughs> that, that, that's where they all came from, was, was, was from that failed effort in 2015 or whatever. So she introduces me to Christina via email, and we meet for coffee in the Rayburn cafeteria. And, and I'm all like, this is a Republican who doesn't have horns. I can deal with him. He's all right. And I, I was like, it's a Democrat. He's not asking for handouts right now. <laughs> I was like, okay. Oh, I was like, maybe. It. I'm going to see the synergy. <laughs> I was like, maybe. Maybe this will work out. And look. On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of policy advocates working behind the scenes. Each week, one of these advocates and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Welcome to 80 Approved Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. You know, for decades, the lobbying community around D.C. was referred to casually as K Street. Well, that's because so many entities, law firms, lobby firms, corporate GRs, would literally base themselves along K Street Northwest. But that has been changing, and it's been changing for some time. In fact, now, if you ask a lot of people, one-on-one constitution is the heart of the lobbying community. It's really a gorgeous building. It, it is dressed to the nines. And we're broadcasting today from a place just next door to that, which has become a real hotspot on Capitol Hill since its existence. Charlie Palmer is not your uncle's steakhouse. But they specialize in steaks. They've got that old vibe menu feel to them, but with some modern twists. And then the, fact, the place itself is certainly not wood paneled and dark and dusty, but kind of neo-traditional is how I would describe this. It's lighter, a lot of windows, great uh, space, quite large, lots of tables, each, each pretty much with their own view of their 6,000 bottle wine collection. But it's also a popular spot for Capitol Hill because of the private rooms, the salons, big events, small events, discreet conversations can be had around the table, and a rooftop terrace with sweeping views of the Capitol and the Mall that can accommodate up to around 400 people. So if you're on Capitol Hill and you're looking for a really nice meal, I highly recommend Charlie Palmer. My guest today are based not far from here either, even though I'm told they're moving, and I'll let them talk about that in a minute. But joining me today is Christina Antello and Mark Williams of Ferrix Strategies. Welcome to you both. And cheers. What a pleasure. Thanks for having us. So 
let's just start with the obvious question. What is Ferrix Strategies, and tell us about the services you offer. Ferox is uh, your your typical boutique lobby shop here on on quote unquote K Street to your to your earlier mention. Uh, we are we are a small but mighty shop. We are bipartisan. We have uh, we have grown in the last five years uh, to about almost thirty clients, um, and and uh, now boast I think a, a staff of nine. Nine people. Um, and we are we are um, again small but mighty, and and we are we are having a good time while we do it. I think. Some days better than the others. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, for, for, for the, the most DC, part, right? right? For the most part, great. I mean, I, I I will note that we are consistently ranked by Bloomberg as one of the top lobbying shops in in town, and I think that's something we're we're really really proud of. Yeah, I read we're three years running. Three years I'm sure running. number four is coming. Let's cross our fingers and hope oh, that's so. Fantastic. So, what kind of services do you offer your clients? Um, so we primarily focus on the federal GR space, so working with Congress and the administration. Uh, we supplement that with some public affairs work with third-party groups, coalition building, um, a little bit on the, the PR space. None of us are, are PR kind of professionals by training, but we've dabbled enough, and, and certainly we've got that in our, our wheelhouse. To, we, can, we can play on the edges, but anytime we need to partner on that front, we do. Um, we've got a bunch of folks that, that we do that with. We, we've been pretty successful on getting some 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 bits here and there plugged in so that's that's been good for our clients yeah i think at the heart of it right it's influencing you know the house and the the senate and the at the administration it's at the very very heart of what we what we do but you say it is important the the pr component i'm seeing that more and more and more when we do advocacy campaigns teaming with pr teams here here and around hill uh around town really i think helps um overarching and, and getting to the kind of the successes that we're, we're trying to of these campaigns tell me about the third party engagement how important is that to your clients and how do you go about building a coalition around their issues you know, it's funny. I think I started um, my career kind of focused a little bit on the tri-caucus side and working with some of the diversity groups first. And I've been doing that for close to 20 years. And so even though diversity is kind of the new hot, trendy topic the last couple of years, kind of my 20-year my resume has that in there. Um, so we work with a lot of third-party groups that are kind of validators in that space. But I think that we quickly... Um, have been able to develop that in other arenas. So, for example, being on the board, for example, I, I care a lot about multiple sclerosis. I'm on the board of the MS Society. Mark does a lot of work on, on cancer research, so he's got some some expertise there. Um, you know, I think Mark also does some work on, on the ag and food space, so we've got connections there. I'm on the board of the National Wildlife Federation. So, we, you know, having these relationships kind of across different issue areas you don't go into them planning that you're going to specifically use it for any one client or one strategy, but then you're like in the middle of a strategy, like, oh my gosh, we really need so-and-so, or we need this, or we need that, or let's get a patient group, or let's do this, or whatever it is. And you just got to creatively come together and figure out kind of what connections you have with these various groups, trade associations, uh, whatever they may be around town. And, and that's kind of like the, the beauty of DC is that we're all together here in this very tiny space, and we can normally find each other or you have a connection from one person to the other to have a bank shot and to be able to bring them in and, and facilitate conversations on your client issues. It can definitely be a small town, can't yes. I, I will tell you, Bill, that the, the third-party stuff was something really new to me coming off the hill. Right? I would I would attend the briefings, and there would be you know, X company paired with X group, and I thought it just happened. Right? I would show up to it. It was like, oh, this is very informative. can't believe these two groups kind of know each other. 
Um, and I thought it was great. Now that you get on the other side and you've pulled the, pulled the curtain back a little bit, you realize there's a, there's a method to the madness, right? So Christina and I, Christina's on the, used to run CHCI, with the CEO of CHCI. I'm on the board of, of Chile. Well, just, just for our listeners. Sorry, CHC, it's the Congressional it's Hispanic Caucus, Caucus Institute. Institute. And then I'm on the board for the Congressional Hispanic Leadership Institute. Um, so kind of the, the, the yin and the yang of the Latino community up on, uh, up on the hill. Um, and so those are important groups that we're, we're involved with, and we certainly utilize a lot when it comes to, to third-party validating. And it's just, it's been really, really interesting to me to see how you pull kind of those groups together along with companies to create, you know, kind of a, a more robust briefing, advocacy campaign, whatever you're, you're trying to get. You know, pulling back the curtain on advocacy is in our mission statement here at 80 Proof Politics. <laughs> Tell me a bit more about your perception when you were on the Hill for all those years. When you saw groups like this coming together around an issue, did you just think it was organic? Yes, absolutely. I thought, oh, one person must just know another person and, and that's it. I didn't realize that there was a whole strategy, a whole campaign kind of behind it to get to me, which was, now that I look at it, that's that's the craziest thing, right? It was a junior staffer, but the whole point of everything that they were doing, all the steps that they were taking was to get to and influence me, which is now that I'm on the other side of it, it's actually kind of brilliant. So as part of that third-party engagement coalition building, do you get involved in organizing and maybe originating grassroots campaigns? We absolutely have. Um, we've, we've, we've done that for a couple of different clients, and it's been it, it's very cool to watch. I remember one a very long time ago, and I'll try not to throw too many people under the bus, but, I mean, there was a... Uh, please please don't throw anyone under the bus. <laughs> I'll, I'll try not to, not on, not on air. But, you know, this was way back at the very beginning of the Tea Party, um, and, um, you know, now it's morphed into the Freedom Caucus, and there's different players, obviously. But, you know, there was an alcohol tax that was coming on board, and we were fighting that alcohol tax, um, you know, for another client at another firm. It was, it was eons ago, it feels like. But, you know, we were like, huh, what if we work with the Freedom, air quotes, Freedom Caucus um, and, and uh, you know, taxpayers and, and what have you kind of look for kind of those, th- that piece of it. And we actually got this organization um, at the time to say, like, hey, if you want to, to, to fight against taxes because, you know, we're all Republicans who hate taxes, then go to your local representative and pour out your whiskey and this will be the new whiskey rebellion and tell them no more no more taxes on alcohol. Oh, and that's so a bridge had, too far. And no, but it was amazing because, like, all of these constituents just thought they were fighting taxes and they went to their member offices and they poured out the whiskey on the front steps of their district offices. Oh, what a waste. For oh. the alcohol company. But I was like, little did they know, like, the alcohol company was was the one and it was all in exchange for like and if you do this and send us a picture and hashtag us we'll send you a t-shirt with a right with like like a five dollar t-shirt and like we got all these pictures this massive campaign and the alcohol company is like yes yes bravo bravo it's amazing oh that's great that's wonderful uh, do you find that people are a little more savvy about grassroots campaigns these days? Maybe see through the mechanisms? Oh, the constituents themselves? Yeah, or, or is it just no. that I'm jaded and been doing it for too long? I think you're jaded and, and you know yeah. kind of the secret sauce. But no, I don't think constituents, they, they see it and they're like, yeah, I want to be part of that. I'm so angry. I want to do that too. And they get jazzed just as much, I think. Yeah, well, then they're, doing, they're motivated for the right reasons. They are. And just to stay on kind of third-party validating, the first time I was just off the hill, we were working a this crazy arcane tax policy. It's the Foreign Investment and Real Property Tax Act. Anyway, FERPTA. it's called called FERPTA. <laughs> no, no one really knows w- 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 what it does, but we pulled together 
kind of some of these groups um, that were dealing with, with, with FERP that did a, did a briefing at the National Press Club and brought in Hill staff, people from Treasury that we were trying to influence, created this big to-do. And Bill, I will tell you, we got this to the, like, one-yard line. We got Senator Mnuchin... Secretary, on, Secretary se, se, Yeah, Secretary, Secretary Mnuchin on, at the Ways and Means Committee saying, I will take care of this, and literally COVID hit a week later. later. A week nice. later. So we were at... I thought I had done it. I was like, <laughs> I am the world's greatest lobbyist. Like, I have, I have come off the hill... I am going to fix this ar- like arcane, ta- arcane, tax, ar- arcane policy. tax policy, we and then there. literally the pandemic hit. I was and like, Treasury well. had something more important to deal yeah, with. Yeah, they were a little distracted like, for a while. <laughs> <laughs> about that. Well, you've brought up COVID, so how did you guys adjust to that? I mean, it was such a challenge for advocates of all colors and stripes to try to figure out how to get access to the people they used to be able to just walk up to and talk. I mean, listen, Ferox isn't even five years old right now. So when the pandemic happened, I think we were two years old. I was six months off the hill. Six months off the hill. And it, and so we, I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't even know enough of like, and, and so little, three days in, we got a client, we got a client call that was like, hey, this scares us. We're going to go ahead and bail. And I thought that was going to be the first of all of them. And then there would be no clients and we would have to close our doors and be done with it. We, and we called each other. We did. And, and we're and like, oh, what do we do? Like, how do we plan for this? Imagine how um, many conversations like that were taking right. place well, across town. Then I was like, you know, it would be amazing being Mike Conaway's chief of staff right now. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> But honestly, that was the only client we lost during the entire pandemic. And what happened was, is there was so much legislation. I mean, these guys were just throwing money out the doors that everybody was like, holy crap, I got to get in on that. I need a lobbyist. And so we... we were you representing folks who cared about the carriers? Everyone. 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 No, we had a but, lot I mean, of we, retail we, clients. We doubled our client load in the pandemic because people were like, we need to have a lobbyist to be part of this bonanza of money giveaway. So like we, I mean, we, we doubled our, our, our client list. It, and it was just, it, it was bonkers at, the, at that time. When the Senate was doing the CARES Act, I tell people I've never been busier in my professional career than lobbying that from my kitchen table with my kids doing math homework right next to me, like trying to, you know, talk to McConnell's folks, talk to Thune's folks, talk to everyone's folks. And as someone who spent most of their time in the House, I found that a little bit difficult. But, you know, we, we, we figured it out and we were able to make some, so, some inroads and get, you know, get a few wins for, for our clients throughout it. So what were the mechanics of making that happen in the early days? Yeah, no, I mean, we were, we were working from home, obviously, and, and kind of following the, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve became four weeks, became six months, and, and what have you. But um, so, you know, we adjusted. We did the Zoom and the Teams. But it's funny. So, like, I mean, I, you know, I'm a majority trust donor on the Dem side, the D-trip donor. I do all the PACs and what have you. And it was like, you know, being on the Hill, going sitting in front of Duncan, you know, as the members or their staff go by, that's how you get intel. That's how you can do more work. Back in the day, you could do more work sitting in front of Duncan, just waiting for staffers to go by. Oh, I used to tell my staff all the time, nothing bad happens from just walking the halls. No, right. and so, but and all that was gone all of a sudden. So I literally was signing up for every Zoom I could attend. And I was like, it sucked, but then I would, and, and I, you know, my friend, the friends I would see over and over again on the Zooms, A, it would be a good way to check in with other lobbyists, my friends I was missing out in the public world. But, you know, it was like I they started making fun of me because I was always the first or second lobbyist with a question. I'm like, this is the only way I'm going to get intel. Like, I'm going to ask the question. This is how I'm going to do it. And I'm going to report to all my clients like 
I was on today with chairman of XYZ committee and I asked this question and this is what he said. And then I would listen to all the other questions in case I could get intel for anybody else. And I would literally be on these like texting clients, like so-and-so just said, blah, blah, blah. And we'd so, write up, we'd write up memos. We for... would write up memos just based off of the intel we were getting. I mean, we had, I mean, we had to adjust, but like, if that was the way to get intel, then I was going to be zooming all day long with members and, and, and it was great. They started getting creative and like sending me like charcuterie boards to my door so that I could drink wine with the member while we were doing this. And, That's great. And Very all that, like it, it got, it got to be cute and fun and it was, you know, it was, but it was the only way to do Intel. So I was in, I was like, I'm, I'm planted here at the zoom screen with, with all of you. It, it was certainly really, really difficult. Right. And I, the way that I explained it to Christina at one point, I felt like I was lobbying with one arm behind my back because I feel like, the, the part that I'm good at is the, is the human a- interaction part, like be, being face-to-face, and that was suddenly taken away. Um, well, yeah, this is the nature of the business. Right. It is very much right. a one-on-one kind of context. But, but, but it was amazing how everyone just kind of adapted to the, to, to the situation. But lobbying was, was super difficult because, like, staff was so busy kind of crafting legislation and taking one million calls from people. Like, how do you find those inroads? And so you really had to rely on the relationships that you, you already had. Because there wasn't any space to kind of create new relationships out of out of thin air via via Zoom, it was it was really tough. I couldn't imagine being a young upstart in town when that lockdown started. I mean, it was it was certainly scary, um, but I think it's kind of a, a badge of honor that 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 we wear. And when we talk to each other, we're like, I can't believe that we we navigated that successfully and have come out the the under end, other end kind of bigger and bigger and badder. That's great. Congratulations. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Christina, you touched on something I'd like to explore a little deeper because a lot of people think of lobbying and the lobbying game as just that one-on-one contact. I go go talk to this staffer. I need to talk to that member. But there is so much more to when you think about the network you referred to because there's a lot of information sharing going on, right? How that, so tell me about the value of working with your colleagues, even if you may not have any professional relationship with them or might possibly be on opposite sides of an issue. Listen, intel is intel. It doesn't matter where you get it or where it came from. It, that, like, as long, if it's valuable information to somebody, then just repeat it. I don't, I, you know, that was something like Mark's over here laughing at me because he knows what story I'm about to tell. Like, he came off the hill and apparently was a, a member of some mailing list every Friday of amazing intel, but he was keeping it to himself as this <laughs> really good, responsible hill staffer that kept all the 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 tea to himself six months in he sends me one story he's like do you think this would be helpful i'm like oh my god you've been getting this every friday for six months that you haven't shared like what are you doing man like get this stuff out there i I, I tell people that's the biggest difference for me being on the hill versus off the hill i feel like on the hill i was responsible for keeping information in and then being off the hill you're responsible for getting information out and you're you become hardwired right you do it for so long up there that you you 
you just get used to, okay, I'm not going to give anyone this information. I'm a lockbox. Like, that's, that's why people trust me. And now you're on the outside, and you're like, take, take, take it all. Take all the information. Well, and it, and it's, you talk about the network. Like, it's not just members and staff, right? I mean, everybody around K Street or in this town knows different pieces of different puzzles and you got to put all the dots together and start making your own connections and, and stringing it together and kind of you know you were talking about third parties earlier the same thing I was like you know if I want to move the ball forward on a healthcare piece of policy and I know you know Dr. So-and-so who runs XYZ trade organization of doctors or, you know, uh, the health management or whatever, and just start putting them together. Be like, can you write an op-ed that talks about this policy? And, and then we'll send it to Dr. Ruiz on Capitol Hill who cares about this and is on the right committee of ENC and blah, blah, blah. You know, like start, like, who does he listen to? Oh, he went to Stanford. Does he care about a Stanford doctor? And like, let me see who I know from Stanford days or whatever it may be. And let's like trying to put together all of the dots to be able, like, what is, what is influential in different ways and not just think of that in a linear term but to be creative about kind of how you again you put all of those dots together on on your map the, the way i explain to people who are who are not in the hill not in dc i was like when you see the de- the detective movies right and they've got all the pictures and then the pieces of yarn connecting everything that's what we're doing but just for policy or whatever outcome we want we've got our our big boards and we're like okay like these are this is how we get to X, re- X result, and it's just a matter of... The way I describe it to folks is, like, you can't convince people that you're awesome by saying, hey, I'm awesome. You need somebody else to be like, hey, that person is awesome. You should love them. And then they put their arm around you, and they give you a big sloppy wet kiss in public. And then they're like, oh, well, if they love them, I must love them too. So then that's... Believe how- me, I, I have tried to convince people by just saying that I'm awesome. No, it doesn't work. you got to have me come and tell them how awesome you are, Mark. I think that's a detractor. No, it's not. Hush up. That's enough out of you. But that is a great point because, like I tell my students every year, you have to know your audience. And the best way to know your audience is take the time to learn about them, right? How do you get that information? Do you rely on third-party software, you know, kind of the people's database kind of thing to try and find out of people, or is it just shoe leather relationship? I think we do more shoe leather. We don't have databases on folks. I mean, we have, like, contact databases, but just to be able to track folks down, I mean, because – Especially in the agencies, I mean, that's it's a revolving door up there, and being able to keep track of like who's at Commerce, who's at USTR, who's at Treasury, like who's I don't know. Like, I'm sure if you show me the list of the fifty thousand people that work there, I'm gonna know somebody. So just show me the list, and I'll find the guy I know. The, the way it was described to me when I was coming off the off the hill, and I was like, oh, I know X person, Y Y Z person. Someone's like, look, your clients are not gonna hire you because of who you know. That's always gonna change. Like, they're gonna hire you for your mind and how you can help them strategize and, and navigate that's that, that's it at the end of the day that's why they're hiring you like the, the the people up here will change but as long as you know how to how to navigate the waters you're going to be fine so when you did make the jump from the hill were there days when you felt like you were in the dark you weren't getting the information anymore oh my goodness yes <laughs> that's it, a classic story it, it, it's it's unbelievable and people told me that would happen i was like not me i was like there is no that happens to other people, not to this guy. He was so cute. He showed up for one of our meetings, like when I was first, like we were talking about maybe he would join Ferox, and he had a spreadsheet of like all the business he thought he was gonna bring, and I like it was it was great, and I was like I love the tenacity, I love that he's coming here. I was like it's cute because it's not gonna happen, but I love that you're thinking. Oh, that and way. people told me that too. They were like, you're gonna make all your lists, and you'd be like, all these people are my friends. You can wad that up and throw it away because it's not gonna happen. And I, and again, I was like, well, that's just y'all. That's that that's not me. I was told the same thing. But I- and it was unbelievable. I mean, I will tell you, it was it was telling 
So I'm up in my office. Let's say I'm two, two weeks in. I've got three emails in my inbox. My phone's not ringing. And I was like, is this, is this thing working? Like, does my computer work? Does my phone work? Because I was used to, you know, 187 emails every hour when I, when I was on the Hill, my, my phone just ringing incessantly. And so it took a little bit, right? It took the clients getting to, to know me, right? It took the people on the Hill knowing kind of what I was doing. It builds up over time. And now you look at your inbox and you're like, oh God, what have I done? Um, but, but it just takes a little bit. No, it's a, it's a definitely like, oh crap moment where you're like, I'm, I'm definitely in a, a different situation now. So let's talk about the start of the firm. Now, you had worked for Podesta, right, before this? Okay. But what prompted you to go out and do your own thing? So it was something I had thought about, I had flirted with for a minute. You remember that summer where we all thought Hillary Clinton was going to be the president, and then... Um, I, I never thought that, just for the record. Well, you didn't think it was going to be Donald Trump. I mean, well, maybe you did. I don't know. But anyway, like, nobody in D.C. actually thought that was going to happen. I mean, maybe four people did. But I thought Hillary, and I was like, huh, maybe it's a good time for me to maybe try this on my own. I don't know. Even, like, flirted with, like, the website. I built a website just in case, kind of, like, was thinking about it. And then, you know, I woke up and Donald Trump is president. I'm like, oh, never mind. I didn't mean it. Just, let me sit back down. <laughs> never mind. What? Oh, no, no, no. I'll just, I'll just hang out here. This is good. We're, we're fine. Um, but so then when they closed their doors, air quotes, closed their doors, um, I was like, you know, I could go be a line lobbyist at another shop. And I, you know, I was being recruited by a couple and having conversations with different folks uh, around town. But I was like, I'm never going to have this chance to do this again. And the chances are, and I, it wasn't until I gave myself actually like permission to fail. I was like, if I try this for a year and it sucks and I can't do it then in a year I'm still marketable to any one of these firms and they'll still want to hire me and, and I'll still be able to get a job, I'm sure, because I am good at this, um, or good enough at this, um, that I would be able to get a job. And so I was like, let me try it for a year. Let me just see what happens. Because if I don't, I will forever think back and be like, oh, I should I should I should have. Um, and so I, I was like, I'll, and I, I just gave myself like, one year, try it one year. And I went out there and like within the first month we had three clients that was enough to pay the bills that we had at that time. And I was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm neutral. I'm not losing money, so that's a good thing. Did and you then, have a safety net of some clients that followed you from Podesta? Um, not at first. So, but so the first two that came on board were folks that that were were then they followed, and then number three was an original, like never had hired me before. And I was like, oh, wait a second, this is this might be something. So I, it was that third client that I was like, okay, maybe maybe we're onto something here. Um, but and I remember thinking to myself, like, because it was in in February of uh, 2018 and we were thinking that by November of 2018 the de Democrats could take back the House and I was like if I want to be legit by November of 2018 I need to be set up and established in the summer of 2018 to be able to bring on new clients that might want to hire me for a Democratic controlled House. So I just wanted to be I wanted to be legit by summertime and so I knew that it had paid off when my friend Bruce Harris at Walmart called me in September thinking that Democrats were about to take the house, he's like, okay, Christina, we're going to give you a chance. And I'm like, all right, Bruce, let's do it. And so then I knew, I was like, okay, we're on to something here. And, and, and it was, and it was working. Um, and, and I think he was client number nine or maybe 10, something like that. But, and so by then I was like, this is, this is working. I don't, I don't need to, yeah, it's, it's enough to, to now I'm making a profit. Like now I can keep my, I can pay my own mortgage, not just keep the lights on, but I can pay my mortgage and, and buy my kids more than ramen noodle. <laughs> so Mark, why was it a good fit for you? You've been on the Hill for so many years. I had, and it, it, and it was time, 
right? Like, we, when I thought about my departure from the Hill, my boss was going to retire. He was the chairman of the House Agriculture Committee at the time. I, I feel like my career kind of run its course on, on the Hill. You know, there were a handful of jobs that probably would have kept me up there. I don't think any of them were, were coming open at the, at, at the time. Um, we had, Republicans had lost the House, so House Republican values were plummeting kind of, kind of downtown. And I started to, you know, evaluate what it was that I wanted to do. Um, one path that I explored was potentially um, going to run a small ag trade association here, here in town. I was in you know, the process for, for some of those and had some of those conversations. But as, as I went through that, it was like, this is way too bureaucratic for me. As someone who had had all kinds of autonomy through, throughout his career, I need some place where I could be myself. I also, I mean, look, I'd, I wear the Republican jersey. I wanted to still play full contact politics and you you can't really do that if you're running he plays full contact politics every day in our office by the way by the way he's got a cowbell every time a democrat retires but anyway i I, i've worn it out over the over over the past several several months like you guys need your own concussion protocols right but again you know i talked to big firms i talked to all republican firms wasn't really the the fit that I was I was looking for. I didn't want to go to a big firm and just be another number in there. Sure, there would have been comfort in in that, but I wanted to. I don't like kind of stake my own ground if I if I could, but I didn't want to really start from zero. Although it was something that I that I thought about as well, and so I formulated the brilliant idea that I would like to team up with a Democrat who had a small shop who wanted to go bipartisan. Unfortunately, because I had played such hardball politics, I knew like five Democrats here in, here in town. So I leaned on a couple of them. I was like, hey, can you do some intros for me? And, you know, I'll, ex- I'll explore this avenue while I'm also talking to these trade associations. Did you two know each other? We had no idea. Had never met. Had never met in our lives. Um, so our good friend who is now in the VP's office, who I had worked with, for several years on immigration reform in the House. They never got across the finish line. But One of your five Democrats. Correct. That, that, that's where they all came from, was, was, was from that failed effort in 2015 or whatever. So she introduces me to Christina via email, and we meet for coffee in the Rayburn cafeteria. And, and I'm all like, this is a Republican who doesn't have horns. I can deal with him. He's all right. And I, I was like, it's a Democrat who's not asking for handouts right and left. <laughs> I was like, okay. I was like, maybe. I'm starting to see the synergy. I was like, maybe. Maybe this will work out. And look, it, I, the, the first conversation went really, really well. We were trying to figure out how does this work. Um, but then as we started to peel back the onion, this is where it gets weird, Bill, and I'm, I'm going to tell you. This um, is weird. We, we figured out that we're kind of the, the same person. The same exact person almost. It's crazy. Person. So You're going to have to define that. Yeah, here we go. We're both born and raised in, in doubt. First of all, we're both the same age. Same age. Months apart. Months apart. We're not going to say who's older, who's younger. He's definitely going to say. <laughs> she, she's, definitely, she's definitely older. You're such an ass. Sorry. I don't know if there's cursing allowed on your podcast or not, but he's, def- he's definitely an ass. Um, but both, both born and raised in, in Dallas. Our children are the exact same. Same age. Our oldest kids were born a day apart. In the same, yeah, it's like nuts. It's nuts. We both had destination weddings. To the U.S. Virgin Islands. At the same, at the same our island in the U.S. Virgin Islands. So as we, like I said, as we continued to talk, peeled the onion back, and was like, 
this... We've been leading these parallel lives, right. like, forever. And I was like, this, this kind of makes too and much we both, sense. We both, like, two Dallas kids end up in, in D.C. doing policy just on the R&D side, and we've never met. Like, it's nuts. And, and we both have very similar senses of humor, although mine may be a little bit more ro- robust. Absolutely. <laughs> Wait, of course, yes. Of course. Absolutely. I'm glad, I'm glad we agree with we that. We agree. We agree on that, sir. And so it just, it just worked out. At the, at, at the end of the day, I didn't decide on doing the, the trade association, association path. I wasn't interested in, in corporate lobbying so much. And so this provided kind of the, the right place for, for, for me to, one, I knew I had to figure out, like, what the hell is lobbying and, and how does it work? I knew I had the hill-facing stuff. I didn't know anything about the client-facing stuff. So I wanted, I wanted to team up with someone that was going to teach me the, the proper way to do it. I'd have conversations with some folks, and I was like, ooh, I don't think I'm going to, like, really learn how to do this right. And, I, you know, from, it was a good person. fit for me at the time. We had a pretty good book of business, and I needed help servicing it. And, you know, I was willing to, quote, unquote, teach him and be training wheels while he figured it out. And Did you have any associates on board at that point? Oh, we did. We had a couple of folks, um, a couple of junior folks uh, who were more in the support role, um, but, um, you know, needed to have kind of that grown-up that could do the client stuff and, and could, take, could take that on. And so that was and, – and have good relationships on the Hill, which Mark obviously brought to the table and on the R side. So he matched me kind of, you know, turn for turn on the D and the R side, and we were able to really then team up and kind of really deliver on, on that front. Um, but, you know, it, for, for me, it made a, a, a lot of sense. I, I, I needed, I, I wanted to be bipartisan. I had missed that from my Podesta days. And quite honestly, I mean, Republicans are way more transactional, right? It's way easier to kill something with a Republican on board. It's way easier to get intel out of Republican offices. It's way easier to get, like, somebody to co-sponsor or sign on to your letter, I think, on the R side. And it's, and it's, and I, I missed having that. And it's like, even though Dems controlled the entire town, you would still get more information out of our offices. Like, they they didn't have the gavels, but they were still like, here's all the witnesses to that list, that that hearing you want to go to. And, like, my D's wouldn't give it to me. And it's like, I, I don't know if that's about my relationships. I don't think it is. I think it's just like they, they're they so concerned about governing, and Republicans are like, no, 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 here, let me help well, you. Yeah, out. I mean, would that have just been a classic minority play that, you know, you're trying to get noticed, you're trying to build... To get heard in the cacophony. I think that the the Republicans just appreciate kind of like the symbiotic relationship of like how this all interplays together better than Dems do. Um, And, and, you know, for better or for worse, it is what it is. But I I wanted to have an R on board, and I liked that he – he was rational. I could have like good, like I mean, we have good, solid debates, and we and we we test each other. We 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 go back and forth, but at the end of the day, we don't take it personally, and we can still like work together. Like none of it becomes personal when he and I kind of go at it. And in fact, we have this shtick back and forth now, where like I mean, he's changed my mind exactly twice in five years, three years, four years, whatever it is, exactly twice. But still, he's changed my mind. You know, whatever whatever it is, and I you know I I think that that's good. He's he he knows how to like influence me to make me think about things and I, I don't know if I do the same for him but I hope I do <laughs> we'll see she's changed my mind like once I can't, I can't remember on what there's, there's still right. time right so I think we first met during your long and storied career for a great American <laughs> Sam Johnson I mean I can't remember how long you were working for Sam but that wasn't your first job in town that was my first job so he, he was he was my he was my hometown congressman I actually started as an intern on his congressional campaign I knew I wanted to get to DC I didn't like my family had no political connections I wasn't a poli sci major I had done uh, 
zero really internships in in DC uh, up to that point. I had done one at the State House while in while in Austin, but that that was it. Um, I knew I wanted to get up here. I wanted to do politics on a national scale. How do I do that? I don't know. So I walked into his his campaign office one day. I was like, I'm here to help. So my first job was putting out yard signs and, and organizing volunteers. I did that so well. <laughs> yard signs. Yard so signs well. so well that they got, gave me the lowest rung of the ladder in a congressional office as a, as a staff assistant. And even that, I feel like it was tenuous. They were like, well, we'll try them out. Maybe. <laughs> and just worked my way up through, through the office over, over the years. So going from staff assistant to LC to LA to LD. And then ultimately had to leave Sam, Sam's office to get my first chief of staff. Yeah, well, that, that's understandable. Yeah, But, Christina, you took a different path. Right? I did. You actually were on Wall Street before coming to D.C. I did. I started at, uh, well, so I did a couple of internships while I was in college at J.P. Morgan on the derivatives desk. Um, and then, so when I was a senior in college, I was like, well, I got this great resume to go to Wall Street, so why not apply to Goldman Sachs, which is like the preeminent bank, and, and sure enough, got a job in the private wealth management division. Um, and was like, well, you know, golden handcuffs of Wall Street. I mean, it's a crap ton of money to somebody who's 22 years old and has hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of uh, school debt, right, from Georgetown. So I, I went to, and it was fun. It was sexy. I didn't have, like, any training in it. I didn't study finance. I had studied government. I thought I was going to come work on Capitol Hill for $3 an hour and eat ramen noodle for the rest of my life because I was going to change the world, like only 18-year-olds. You had a passion. Yeah, like only 18-year-olds think they can, right? And, and and here's Goldman Sachs with their, like, all, you know, bags full of money. And I'm like, okay, I guess. Let's do it. Let's Yeah, for sure. Uh, and And I, you know, it was fun. It was sexy. It's a good job. And it was... Uh, I learned so much about kind of the world and markets and how businesses think and, and free markets overall, right? And that's where Mark and I start talking about like how we're the same. Like I'm, I'm a Democrat, but I believe in free markets. I do. And I believe in kind of the efficiency of markets and how that happens. And kind of you start to understand rational actors in terms of like what they're trying to maximize profit and, and return to their shareholder. I understand and get all of that stuff. Um, and, and, you know, it's like I finally just, but, you know, there was a policy issue. I'm Cuban by background, and this was back in the day of Elian Gonzalez. And I remember being on the trading floor, and it was the day that Janet Reno sent the FBI in to go get Elian from his family in Miami. And I could see the screens, but I was literally on the phone with a billionaire. His name is Bobby. And we were trading stocks, and he was going to buy a chateau in France, and he needed to clear the payments, and we needed to sell $5 million worth of stock. And, like, I remember very precisely. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm such a sellout that I'm talking to billionaire Bobby, and I'm supposed to be in Washington, D.C., talking about this kind of Cuba policy. Like, that's what I had envisioned for my, my, my ideal 18-year-old self back in the day. And I was like, I've, I've, I've got I've to fix this. I've got to correct. I've got to course correct. I'm going to leave Goldman. I immediately signed up for the LSAT the next week, and I'm like, i got to get back to Washington and figure out how to get there. I, and, and it was so funny because at that time I had told myself I've wasted, I used the word wasted in my own head, wasted five years of my life working on Wall Street and not working on Capitol Hill because now I'm going to be, you know, 27. And it's like all these kids that went there straight out of college at 22 as LCs at 22 would now be Your LGs, right? And so now I'm going to go there at 27 and what, start all over? I was like, no, let me at least go to law school. And by the time I graduate law school at 30, then maybe I'll be alleged counsel. Like that, that at least will be respectable. So then I, that's why I decided I needed to go to law school. Did you go to law school down here? I did. I went to GW just down the street, and I thought, you know, like, okay, then I got a legal fellowship. At that time, I was working on the Senate for then Senators Clinton and Daschle, which isn't a bad place to start back in the day. 
and um, I worked for the for the for the policy committee, the steering committee, um, and had and done some work for you know outreach in their offices and, and, and what have you. And then I went to work at a law firm here in town called DLA Piper, and they you know big global law firm, but they had a lobbying practice. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I can do policy and make money? Shut up. Like, that's a, what? And yeah. not have to do 2,500 billable? Yes. Sign me up. And I was like, I, and that's when I, I decided to, to, to go forth with, with lobbying. So I didn't even, like, my, my detour on Capitol Hill didn't even last that long. I went straight to lobbying and, and kind of started straight straight out of law school from and, there. And just for just for the listening audience, being an LC it, it, it is respectable. <laughs> <laughs> if you like ramen noodle. That's right. Okay. That's right. <laughs> I'm seeing a recurring menu item here. <laughs> I mean, We're for, big fans for 87 cents a pack, like, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's clearly affordable. Right. I want to take a step back to services you offer your clients because I saw one aspect on your website, which is maybe not be unique, but it's certainly not a common aspect of lobby firms. What do you mean by offering PAC strategies? PAC strategies. So there's a lot of folks who have PACs, but maybe not buku bucks, and they have limited dollars, and they want to know how to have the highest impact with those dollars. And But they may not know kind of the full complement of where people stand on their issues and what they care about and want to know kind of like, who should I give to? Which events are the most profound and effective to be able to move my specific policy issue or concerns forward? So this is more than just creating and offering a scorecard. Oh, yes. far more. Yeah. Far, far, far more. I mean, for, for example, right now, we have, have had talks with, with some of our clients about who are the prospective members of Ways and Means of Energy and Commerce? Should you give to them now so, so that you're kind of on the ground floor before they're even on those, on those committees? You know, right now they may be a member of the Small Business Committee, but in the next Congress they'll be on, on Ways and Means. Let's go ahead and if you've got extra dollars now, let, let's give to them so that we can you know, be effective in the, in the next Congress. So looking prospectively, like what is the, what is the best kind of bang for, for their buck? Well, and, and there's some folks that are just so new to even lobbying in D.C. in general. Like, I mean, we've got a couple of clients where, you know, they don't have a D.C. office. We are kind of their their D.C. presence. And they're like, you know, when you tell them, like, oh, well, you know, political giving should be part of your strategy, they look at us kind of dumbfounded, like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, okay, then let's build you a list of people that you should write some personal checks to if you don't have a pack per se, but... You know, if you're, you can't be corporate dollars, obviously, like, even teaching them the ethics piece of it, right? Like, what's allowed, what's not allowed? What do you say? What can you not say? It can't be on government property. We're going to go off government. Whatever all the, the rules are to make sure that they do it properly and, 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 and stay out of jail. Nobody likes orange. To make sure that, you know, we can then be like, okay, well, let's supplement kind of, we're going to go meet with a staffer and talk policy, but then we're going to go to coffee with a member and say, you know, like, and, and tell more of the politics behind it and why this is smart strategy for them for XYZ reasons. And I think another part of that offering is helping our, our clients build their packs internally as well, offering them advice. Okay, I've seen other clients do X, like you could you do that to help promote it internally to get more get more giving. Maybe we go get X member to either record a video or talk to you talk to your people internally to talk about the importance of, of, of giving to your pack and how it's how it's utilized. On a percentage basis, what would you say amongst your clientele are those that have a Washington operation in government relations already and those who don't? 
eighty twenty. Do versus don't. Do versus don't. Do versus yeah. yeah, I mean it's it, it's rare that they that they don't, but there are some, and so there is a a bit more education that that has to take place if they're not kind of seasoned Washington operators because it is a you know foreign country to to, to them to understanding and and maneuvering here. So while it's obviously different, it's it's just a different kind of explanation and, and process that we have to go through when people, when people don't have offices. So I would imagine you're spending a good portion of your week in calls and meetings with those clients because they probably have other lobbyists as well they're pulling together. And- yes. yes. And, and, and in, I think in different, that, kind of different degrees. Right? Well, well, and I think that all, that expanded too, to get back to the pandemic, yeah. right? I think people, we all got used to Zoom meetings, right, and the the one-on-one touches, where all these meetings used to be in person. Right. We we see a lot of these touches being virtual now, and it's a lot easier for everyone, and you can cram it in the schedules. But that still exists. Like these these Zoom kind of touch points with with clients sit, still exist. And I mean, it's it's obviously something that, that we, we like touching touching base with them, but it's it's something that has to be done. I've I've missed kind of the the in person. I mean, I. Yes, in-person fundraisers and meetings on Capitol Hill. I mean, there's no Democrat happier that Republicans are coming back just so that they'll open up the Capitol again because I want to get back in there. I do. I, I, I miss Ooh, I don't, it. I don't think you can say that. I, I just did. <laughs> I did, Mark. I, and I, I want to get... We might have to edit that part. No, 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 no. I don't, don't edit that part. I, I mean, I'm ha- I want to get back in there. I want to be back in those hallways, and I, I think that that'll be a big, a big deal. And it'll be interesting, though, because I think a lot of clients in their corporate worlds have become very comfortable with the Zoom. So in their minds, they'll still want to do all these Zoom meetings, whereas I'm going to be transitioning to be like, I'm going to go back and start touching staffers again. And, like, I want to sit at Duncan again and get intel and, like, be the smart, good, effective lobbyist that I know that I can be working on, on that Capitol Hill and, like, Zooming in and out of meetings, I guess, from Duncan, from wherever, you know, now that now we got a We the Pizza in there. I hope it's still there. Is it still there? Yeah, I, okay, did it survive the pandemic? Did. So I, I just got this image in my head of you with a cuppa in one hand and FaceTiming with the client, yeah, the staffer, and the right other. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, there, <laughs> we were just joking. There was a lobbyist who Zoomed into a meeting with, like, the bib on. Like, he had put his napkin into, like, from where he had gotten lunch and what have you. I'm like, I hope that's me pretty soon. I don't know. I want to I be back. Um, but, you know, like, I, I just I, – there's just – do you remember, like, you would go to meetings and you'd be on the fifth floor of, of Cannon and then you'd be coming down and you'd run into six members on their yeah. way to go catch the train. You'd be like, hey, Congressman, hey, Congresswoman, how you doing? And you would just see that and they would be like, oh, Christina, it's good to see you again, blah, blah, blah. And, like, you know, not that they forget you, but, like, it's just good when they get to yeah. be reminded that you're there constantly and, 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 and want to engage and should want to engage. You're right. Just from being there, you get – to have the conversations, you get the info, you get the intel, and you build the relationships. Yep. We have to get back to that. Ha- have to. And, and look, I think there's going to be some middle ground, right? Yeah. Like, as I talk to staff, it definitely is more efficient for their time doing kind of a hybrid setup, right? And if it's an easy meeting, I think they'll push it to, 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 to Zoom as much as I don't want to. Um, and so I think we have to get used to, yes, some of them are going to be up there, and then some of them are going to be in... In, in our office on, on our computer, what I think was the most difficult transition as we started to get more and more in person was rem, kind of the muscle memory of getting to the places, getting yeah. in and out of the places. Right. Like we would get scheduled for Zoom meetings just before we boom, had boom, a, boom, a boom, boom. in-person meeting. Yeah. And, and it was like, that I, I physically can't, can't happen. Yeah. And so 
you know, for, for the junior folks on our team that never kind of worked outside of the pandemic, it was something that they had to get used to sure. and kind of still getting used to. And I think next year will be even more of a, a transition. We, we used to have, we had a client that, you know, we, we meet every, every other week, but they would always feed us tacos. So we would have our oh. consultants meeting at lunchtime and they would feed us, you know, tacos, pizza, whatever it was. And I was missing that. And so now they finally brought it back. And I was like, yeah, I'm like, tacos are back. Fantastic. It's about time. <laughs> It's the little things, man. It's the little things. Now, I first learned about Ferrex when you made the jump from the hill. But it seems like it's hardly a week goes by. I don't see one or both of you as some talking head in front of a camera or in a column on in Politico or one of the trades and all that. How important is that front-facing communication strategy for you two and the firm? The, the honest answer is I have no idea. I have no idea. But it leads to that perception. It, but, so, but the fact that you say that tells me, like, I guess it's working. Whatever it is, it's working, right? And, so, and that's, I think that's why we do it. I think the way that I thought about it, when I think about rainmaking, building business, all those things, I, there was a point in my career when I was first trying to figure out how do I build my book, as, you know, any entrepreneur starts to think about, like, I was doing all this research and putting together lists, kind of like his list when he showed up on day one and what have you. And I was like, and cold calling and trying to market myself to people who had no idea who I was. And it was 0% successful. Zero, but I didn't, I got no clients that way. Zero. And it wasn't until after I had already been a lobbyist for about a decade that then people would call me like, hey, we worked together and I saw you do this thing and I thought you were good. So now I want to hire you to do mine. Excellent. Or, hey, we work together and you used to, you know, I, now I'm at a new place and I want you to come work for me here. Or, you know, Bruce Harris at Walmart. Like, you worked for me while you were at Podesta and now I need you on my team at Ferox. And, 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 and I, it, it was all of this, like, referral business or, like, people who already knew me and it was that reputation piece. And so then I started thinking about kind of in terms of the media that you were mentioning, kind of like, if somebody gets a referral to me, right, they hear, like, oh, you should work with Christina. She's good. They're going to, like, the first thing they're going to do is go on the Google machines Type in Christina Ferox, and they're going to see what pops up. Right. And the more credible stuff that pops up, the better, right? And so if they see me and Mark battling it out on Fox 5 talking about the elections, and they see that, you know, I penned an op-ed here, and I did a podcast there, and blah, and they hear me talk, and they oh, she's smart, she's good, okay, I guess she's out and about, she's, I, I, I believe that, then that's kind of how I think about it. And, and so that's, that's why I think that we've prioritized it, because we need to just get that reputation out there so that when somebody's interested in us they can be like oh yeah they are smart i do like them it's funny because it was something that we really kind of pushed the accelerator on during the pandemic right we we hadn't done a whole lot of it prior prior to then but we're like how do we market ourselves without if we're not at cocktail parties right if if we're not out there again i told you it was lobbying with kind of one arm behind my back and so we started to do, do some of it. We're like, okay, we'll push it on the on socials, and then we got more and more feedback from people. They're like, oh, well, you guys are are you guys everywhere. Are everywhere. And it tar- we're not everywhere. We're not. But like it's, <laughs> it looks like it. It's it, it, it certainly. But you're getting a lot of impressions. Right, it, it, and I think that in this day and age, right, I think that's worth its its weight in gold. And so, I, I consider kind of business development like interviewing for a job. Right. At the end of the day, there's a thousand people out here that that lobby. Can you stay at the forefront of people's minds? How, and how do you do that? One, the work that you do. And two, I think the, the, the marketing behind it. Well, how'd you make that first step in that direction? 
Were you approached by yeah, some media and, yeah, outlet? We were. And, I, and, and that was the thing, like being completely like not savvy to it. I think we, we made some wrong calls at the beginning, and I think now we're a lot more. The, the wrong call being we both did Russian television, <laughs> oh, no. un, 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 unbeknownst to us. We didn't know. We didn't know what yeah. that was. We they, they're like, like hey, what? do RTTV. And we're like, we were so such novices about it. We were like, yeah, we'll totally do it. I'm free on Tuesday. Sure. Right. What's up? And, and so we go and do it, and then we're like, we can't Whoa. do that's yeah. Russian television. We cannot do that ever again in our lives. And so, obviously, we've never done it again. We didn't know at the, at the time what it was. Um, although she will call Fox News Russian television from, from time maybe, to time. Maybe, maybe you're on some while. Hannity, yes. But, uh... You know, I'd like to ask each of my guests for some advice. What kind of salient advice would you give to somebody just starting out in town, somebody who's been around and maybe doing a career pivot? I'll let you both answer. Who wants to go first? I'll go first um, because this is the one piece of advice I give to everyone from interns to, to whoever. It is work hard and be nice. That is it. It's not a like, difficult equation at, at all. You're, if you want to have longevity in this town, you don't want to create any enemies, but you also want people to know that you you're going to work hard on on their behalf and i i i preach this all the time i was like it's you don't have to triangulate a whole lot of the, if those are the only two things that you do you, you're gonna you're gonna be fine in this town because there are some people that work really really hard and are jerks and people know that and and they're like god oh, that guy's a huge dick whatever please um, and thank you right and, and, and that's just, like, that's how my, my parents raised me, open the door, do, do all the things, right? And, and work hard, because there are some people who are super, super nice, but you're like, God, he, that person, he's great, but he's lazy. And so it, you, want, you want to be known by both, and it, at the end of the day, like, it, it, again, it's not a difficult equation. And, you know, we, we already said we're basically the same person, so my, mine isn't that much different, right? There, there's a reason all over our website it says hustle is our strategy, and it and it. I, I first kind of struggle. Like, do I put that on the website? It sounds a little cheesy, but I, I really believe it. There's a lot of lazy, lazy lobbyists in this town who are more than happy to just collect their retainer checks every month and not have to work for them and will only kind of do whatever they're asked to do and not go above and beyond. It's like, I mean, the way that I think about Ferox, the way I train our young people, it's like, we need to win the week. How do we win the week? Like, we need to let our clients know every single day that we're thinking about them. That we, you know, even if we, we weren't the only ones to deliver Intel, we thought of them and we delivered it. And we're going to, even if I'm not the smartest person on XYZ policy, you know, healthcare policy, but you want co-sponsors, I'll go get you co-sponsors. Tell me what co-sponsors you want. I'll take 40 assignments and I'll deliver 27 of them at the end of the day. Like, I will work my ass off for you under this table. And I, over and over, I'll just be like, I may not be the smartest person in the room. I'm usually not. But I will work harder than anybody else. And I hope that that's the thing that sets Ferox apart. That's the only thing that I care about kind of usually when, I'm, when I am bringing these folks on board and, and what have you is that put in all the effort. If we fail at the end of the day, then we'll, we'll own that. But at least we'll know that we left everything on the field failing and not that we're like, oh, well, we should have tried this, we should have tried that, or we didn't do this, or we didn't put in all the effort. And we, that's, you know, I'm, I'm a hard boss, <laughs> but I, I think a fair one. I hope a fair one, but that is that is the, the lesson I try to teach all of those folks, and that's that's the reputation I want Ferox to have. Perhaps a ferocious. Ferocious, yes. There you go. Well, Christina, Mark, it's been great having you on 80 Proof Politics. I so look forward to keeping up with both of you. And just remember, 
no matter what you think about the current state of politics in D.C., whether you think the glass is half empty or half full, there's always room to fill your drink. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Welcome. Thank you. 80-Proof Politics is brought to you by Big Wig Media, part of the Evergreen Podcast family. You can find this and other fascinating podcasts from our nation's capital at bigwigpodcast.com. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.